so today we're going to be talking about the Sunday School Movement, the YMCA, and Dwight, and Dwight L. Moody. <laughs> so um, I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Sunday School, you know, we, this is something most of us take for granted. Um, I know I certainly do, and I never thought about you know, where does this idea come from to have education combined with, um, you know, a worship service on a Sunday or on a weekend? And what about the YMCA? I mean, that's kind of everywhere, and we take that for granted. Every city has branches of the Y. But where did it come from? Who started that? What was their thinking behind this institution um, for many of us today, the YMCA is just kind of a recreational place, but it didn't really start out that way, and we'll talk about um, the origins of the YMCA and, and what the original intent was, and you can see on uh, this slide, there's kind of like a medallion or an emblem uh, or a logo, I guess you could say. This was from, this was what the YMCA was using in uh, the late 1800s, um, they, they started off as just being in the US and in Great Britain, um, but then very quickly it grew and it spread all over the world. And so by the late 1800s, there were uh, YMCAs all throughout the world. I don't know how well you can see this image, but um, there's the, um, uh, I guess it's the ichthus uh, let Greek letters, and then on top of that is a Bible, um, and it references John 17, 21, and I'm going to read John 17, 21. You know, you would think the standard verse would be John 3, 16, right? No, they took John 3, or rather 17, 21, and that passage of scripture is from Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, and I'll read that. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So they're basically, uh, the YMCA started off as... Uh, a way to conquer the world for Christ, not just a nice rec center, as good as that is. Okay. Okay, so the modern Sunday school movement, um, we'll take a look at this first. Throughout the history of the Christian church, various forms and methods have been used to educate church members in the faith, whether those members are children, teens, or adults. In the early church catechesis, which is a Greek word meaning instruction, it started off as an education of converts to Christianity. But as the religion became institutionalized, catechesis was used for education of members who had been baptized as infants. So once the church got going and they were baptizing more infants than they were adult converts, uh, they needed a way to educate those children in the faith. 
Simple methods were used at first, including memorization of portions of the Bible and the creeds. Manuals for Christian instruction, or catechisms, began to appear in the late Middle Ages in Europe. During the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers insisted that the Lord's Prayer and other forms be memorized in the vernacular languages of the people rather than in Latin, as was the practice among Roman Catholics. And they wanted individuals to be able to fully understand the prayers. The use of a question and answer format was popularized by Martin Luther in his 1529 Small Catechism. Luther wanted the catechumen, a Greek word meaning one being instructed, to understand what he was learning. So the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, uh, or literally the Ten Words, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed were divided into small sections, and each of those sections was followed by the question, what does this mean? So Luther's emphasis, like uh, so many people who've been involved in Christian instruction is, I want you to memorize some things, but I don't want you to just memorize. I want you to be able to understand these. Ultimately, you should be able to explain what these things mean. As the Reformation grew in scope in Western Europe, confessions of faith were developed that served as the basis for instruction. The Westminster Confession of Faith was first drawn up by the 1646 Westminster Assembly in England as part of the Westminster Standards. And this was kind of, it, it became the official confession of faith for the Church of England. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is a catechism written between 1646 and 1647 by the Westminster Assembly for the Church of England, and it's based on the larger catechism. Uh, the larger catechism was intended for adults, and it was intended that ministers would use this catechism as a framework when they put together their sermons and also any adult instruction that occurred in the church. Now, the shorter catechism is composed of 107 questions and answers. It's not very short, <laughs> but it is shorter than the larger catechism. The first 12 questions concern God as creator, and questions 13 through 20 deal with original sin and the fallen state of man's nature. Questions 21 through 38 concern Christ the Redeemer and the benefits that flow from redemption. The next set of questions, 39 through 84, discuss the Ten Commandments. Questions 85 through 97 teach concerning the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper. The final set of questions, 98 through 107, teach and explain the Lord's Prayer. And of course, for many of us, we know the first question. Very well known, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The idea of a Sunday school came out of the first great awakening in England. So, you know, I'm hoping by now, if you've listened to enough of these um, messages on church history, when you hear the phrase, first great awakening, the first thing that should pop into your mind is, 
Wesley, John Wesley, the Methodist movement, George Whitfield, etc. Okay, the 1700s. Like so many innovations that transform the moral and spiritual climate of Britain, Sunday schools were a product, although indirectly, of the evangelical awakening that shook the country in the 18th century. In a short history of the English people, the Oxford historian John Richard Green writes, a yet nobler result of the religious revival of the 18th century was the steady attempt which has never ceased from that day to this, to remedy the guilt, the ignorance, the physical suffering, and the social degradation of the poor. Green goes on to state that it was not until the Wesleyan impulse had done its work that this philanthropic impulse began. The Sunday schools established by Mr. Robert Rakes of Gloucester at the close of the century were the beginnings of popular education. Whoops, I forgot. <laughs> Sorry about this, I had some issues with my PowerPoint this time. I have a few typos and glitches. I will go back and, and fix this. Um, anyway, uh, a man by the name of Robert Rakes who was born in 1736 in England and died at some point in the 18th century. <laughs> <laughs> was a prominent citizen and businessman, the owner of the influential Gloucester Journal. Uh, so he was pretty well off. He was well, uh, the family was well connected, both spiritually and naturally. The Rakes were related by marriage to the reformer William Wilberforce, and were also acquainted with another famous citizen of the town, the great evangelist George Whitefield or Whitfield, who a few years earlier had started his ministry around Gloucester by preaching his first sermon in St. Mary de Crypt in 1736. And both Wesley brothers, John and Charles, were frequent visitors in the Rake's home. Rake's initial philanthropic concern was for prison reform. He was a lifelong friend of the great evangelical prison reformer, John Howard, and in 1773 accompanied Howard on a visit to the Gloucester Jail. Now, we're getting a little bit off topic here, but I thought it would be important to talk about uh, the general conditions for the, the life of many people in England at this time. So we're going to talk a little bit about what was going on in the prison system. Oh, and I'm sorry that picture came out. Boy, that's dark. That's really dark. Um, it, what it's supposed to portray is it's just a bunch of people in a big room, and this is actually a prison, quote-unquote, cell, and it's just a whole lot of th people thrown into a big room, and they're imprisoned there. Although Howard reckon, reckoned that Gloucester was actually one of the better jails in the country, Rakes was shocked by what he found. Sometimes whole families were imprisoned due to their debts. Remember, in this time period, there was no such thing as being able to file bankruptcy. If you didn't have enough money to pay your debts, they just threw you into jail. Men, women, and children were often locked up in the same cells. Prisoners depended on other family members to bring them food and clothing. 
you wouldn't get three squares in the jails of those days. You wouldn't get any medical care. If you fell sick, too bad. Uh, no clothing was provided for you. You were uh, hoping that somebody in your extended family would be able to come and bring you food and clothing and maybe you know, a little bit of medicine if you were sick. It was through his work in the prisons that the idea of the Sunday school was born in Rake's thinking in that he saw a direct connection between ignorance and poverty and vice. Ignorance is the root of the degradation everywhere around us, he wrote. Idleness is a consequence of ignorance. Idleness breeds vice, and vice leads to the gallows. To Rakes, as ignorance was the cause of vice, then the logical cure of ignorance was education. Now, some have criticized Rakes, claiming that this stand is in opposition to the evangelical stance of Wesley Whitefield and other leaders of the revival who pointed to reformation of character through the saving of the soul. But this is really kind of a non-argument. If you want to take an ignorant person who's given over to a life of sin, yes, you want them to hear the gospel, receive Christ, uh, be redeemed, and embark on a life of sanctification, growing in holiness. But what's one of the chief ways of doing that? It is through the scriptures. If you can't read, how are you going to be able to grow in sanctification? Rake saw that if a person learned to read and write, especially the scriptures and the catechism, he or she might very well come to a knowledge of salvation. In any case, they would most likely grow to be a better and more worthy citizen. At this time, only the middle and upper classes in England got any education at all. The children of farmers, miners, and factory workers seldom got any formal education and had to work alongside their parents or other adults in the fields, mines, and factories of England. The factory system brought huge changes to English society. People moved from farms and villages to work in the factories of cities like Birmingham, Manchester, and Liverpool, where living conditions were terrible. Family structure broke down, and many children were left to fend for themselves, homeless and hungry. At this time, you know, if you were in the lower classes and you lived in one of these industrial cities, the entire family worked in factories mother, father, and all the children uh, when they were old enough. And a lot of children started in the factories at ages five and six. Rakes hoped to educate these children who often had to work six days a week, which only left Sunday for a school day. Okay, because England is ostensibly a Christian nation, uh, the employers are not gonna make people work seven days. They probably would have liked to have done that, but again, because of the Church of England and you know, a relative degree of influence of Christian thinking, uh, there's still this idea of the Sabbath. So the factory owners would be looked down upon if they ran their factories seven days a week. So Rake started a Sunday school in 1780. Oops. 
With 50 children gathered in the churchyard at Gloucester Cathedral, Rakes began to teach them the catechism. This first attempt was not successful, and Rakes turned to employing married women to teach children in private homes. So he was basically funding this. As the program gained a following, it became more successful. Lessons would take place in the morning from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. The children would then return at 1 o'clock for more lessons until 4 p.m., then walk across the road to St. Mary de Crip Church to attend a short service during which they were catechized. So it was a full day for the kids, and I'm sure they fed them as well. They would have had to. <laughs> Finally, to round off this full day, they would return to school with more lessons until 5.30 when the children would go home. There were rules against cursing and swearing, and good behavior and reverence during the Sunday sessions were always insisted upon. The boys were taught to bow and the girls to curtsy. In the case of recalcitrant scholars, Rakes would see to it that parents administered proper discipline themselves. And the Sunday school program in Gloucester became a great success. As owner of the influential Gloucester Journal, Rakes was in a prime position to publicize the success of the work. In 1783, he wrote an anonymous article referring to the Sunday school as a grain of mustard seed. From that time on, the seed certainly bore fruit as the article was picked up by newspapers in London and other cities and the work of the Sunday schools began to be publicized worldwide. The good citizens of Gloucester noticed how noise and disorderly behavior was markedly reduced and a greater sense of peace prevailed across the city. Other Christians inspired by rakes started Sunday school programs in London and other English cities. In 1787, rakes celebrity had grown and he was invited to an audience with King George III and Queen Charlotte at Windsor Castle to talk about its work. Okay, and when you hear about King George III, this is the King of England who was reigning at the time of the American War for Independence. So that, you know, you can think about how America was at this point in British history. A year later, in 1788, when the royals were staying in nearby Cheltenham, they spent a Sunday with the Rakes family and were shown around some of the Sunday schools in Gloucester in order to see the work at first hand. And following this, articles about the visit appeared in the Gloucester Journal, and this was further promoted by the London newspapers. So certainly, if the king and queen are interested in this and, and behind it, you know, that's, that's huge. Robert Rakes died in 1811. There we go. <laughs> but the, gro the growth of the movement he pioneered was quite phenomenal, and it is estimated that after 50 years, in 1831, there were 1,250,000 children attending, a quarter of the population. Another early pioneer of Sunday schools was Hannah Moore. Born in 1745 in Bristol, Hannah went to school when she was 12 and later became a teacher at the same school. Now, what does this girl's education tell you about her social status? She was well off. She came from a, 
a prosperous family because only prosperous families could afford to educate their children. Mostly girls were not educated much at all. Um, usually they were educated at home, seldom sent to school, but the more enlightened English parents would send their daughters to school if they could afford to do that. And she was one of these very fortunate girls. Born in 1745 in Bristol, Hannah went to school when she was 12, later became a teacher at the same school. Um, it was often, you know, at this time period, women couldn't go out and get jobs. That was not acceptable for a, uh, a woman of any social standing, middle class and up, to go get a job. First off, they didn't need it. Their family would support them. You know, they would marry early, presumably, and their husband would support them. However, one area that women could go into vocationally was education. And you can see how the Sunday school movement would open a lot of doors for women who wanted to, to do more than what they might have been doing in the home. Uh, this, this provides an opportunity for women uh, to enter teaching. When she was young, Hannah found skill in penmanship and spent long hours writing plays, poems, and other literary works. And as an adult, she actually wrote novels, which were actually published. Again, a very unusual thing for a woman at this time period. And here you have portraits. They are pretty dark, unfortunately. Um, but on uh, the left, you have Hannah Rakes, or, or sorry, Hannah Moore um, in old age. And uh, Rakes is pictured on the right, of course. And they look pretty typical for people of that era in terms of their clothing and so forth. In 1774, Hannah met John Newton, William Wilberforce, and other members of the so-called Clapham sect, a group of 18th century Church of England social reformers based in the Clapham section of London. Hannah became a close friend of Wilberforce. And she is mentioned, if you, if you watch the movie Amazing Grace, and if you have not seen that movie, just come over to our house and We'll, we'll screen it for you for, you know, the millionth time. <laughs> uh, but she was, she was part of the group that kind of coalesced around William Wilberforce, uh, pushing for all kinds of social change, prison reform, uh, education reform, uh, abolishing slavery, uh, helping elevate the poor. All of these things were uh, important focus of these Christians. When Hannah returned to Somerset in 1789, Wilberforce suggested that she start a Sunday school. Although the area was rural, it still faced the problems of poverty, illiteracy, and spiritual ignorance that Rakes had found in the city of Gloucester. So Hannah started the first Sunday school in Cheddar, England, the place where cheddar cheese comes from initially. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we are all thankful for cheddar cheese. Hannah and her sister Martha rented a small house and barn for the school where the school teacher could live and the barn served as the schoolhouse. During the next 10 years, 12 more schools were opened in nearby villages 
with most of the funding given by members of the Clapham sect. Moore wrote a book called Hints on How to Run a Sunday School, in which she said that programs had to be planned and suited to the level of the students. She advocated for variety in education with classes as entertaining as possible, including singing. So again, this, this is a school that encompasses all aspects of learning, reading, writing, and arithmetic, to put it in, those old, in that old-fashioned phrase, but all with an aim towards being able to instruct the children in the Christian faith. If they learn to read, they can read the Bible. It should be remembered that most Sunday schools of this period were doing a lot more than religious instruction. The children attending these schools, this, they were illiterate, they were poor. This was the only formal instruction they ever received. Uh, the goal of most of the backers of the Sunday school programs was to enable the children to learn to read and write, to be able to do basic arithmetic, but also that they could learn to read and understand the Bible and receive religious instruction. Now, another byproduct of this education is if a child can read and write and do uh, arithmetic, math, maybe they can be more than just a factory worker. Maybe they can be an apprentice to a skilled tradesman. Uh, maybe they can learn more of a skill that will help them earn more money in their lifetime and they will be able to gradually rise socially as a result. So there, there's a lot of good things that will come out of this education. Now, of course, like any innovation, Sunday schools did not go opposed. To many land and factory owners, and even some in the religious establishment, the thought that these lower classes are, are learning to read sparked fears of a French-style revolution. And actually, I think they were totally wrong. They totally missed the boat. This would help English people of the lower classes become a more cohesive part of the society and lead to a less of a sense of we need to rebel against the upper classes. Other criticisms included the claim that Sunday schools would weaken home-based religious education, that they might be a desecration of the Sabbath, because after all, isn't the teacher working on a Sunday to teach the children? Christians should not be employed on the Sabbath. But the good effects of the Sunday school program could not be denied by the upper classes, as land and factory owners soon came to see that their employees were greatly improved in their manners and deportment as a result of this education. Two of the greatest preachers of the Victorian era, Charles Spurgeon, whom we've talked about in England, and D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody in America, both began their ministries as Sunday school teachers. Moody had a Sunday school of over a thousand in Chicago. Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle in London eventually had a thousand children in regular attendance, another 150 in the senior class, 700 in the young women's Bible class, and a further thousand children in the branch Sunday schools. Dwight Lyman Moody, born February 5th, 1837, died December 26th, 1899, also known as D.L. Moody, was an American evangelist and publisher connected with the Keswick Holiness Movement in England, which we've talked about. Remember, the Keswick Holiness Movement 
in, uh, as it kind of came over to America, uh, uh, kind of spawned the Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, evangelical church denomination. Moody founded the Moody Church, Northfield School, and Mount Hermon School in Massachusetts. Uh, Those schools were combined. They still exist, uh, known today as the Northfield Mount Hermon School. Uh, the Moody Bible Institute, very famous. How many people have heard of Moody Bible Institute? Many, yes. And Moody Publishers, of course, yes. We've all heard of them. Born into an impoverished New England family, Moody was raised as a Unitarian. When he turned 17, he moved to Boston to work in an uncle's shoe store. One of the uncle's requirements was that Moody attend the Congregational Church of Mount Vernon, where Dr. Edward Norris Kirk served as the pastor. Uh, So he's going to a real church, not a Unitarian church uh, now. In April 1855, Moody was converted to evangelical Christianity when his Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, talked to him about how much God loved him. His conversion sparked the start of his career as an evangelist. When the Civil War started in 1865, Moody decided he could not be a soldier. He became a conscientious objector, like the Quakers. In other words, it was against his conscience to pick up a gun and kill people. He became involved with the United States Christian Commission of the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, and we'll talk more about them uh, later. He paid nine visits to the battlefront, being present among the Union soldiers after the Battle of Shiloh and the Battle of Stones River. He also entered Richmond, Virginia, when the South surrendered with the troops of General Ulysses S. Grant and became a good friend of Grant's. During his time ministering to the troops during the war, he managed to start a Sunday school. After a short period of time, the Sunday school was attracting up to 650 attendees. And Moody ministered to many Southern prisoners of war, as well as the Union troops. After the war, he moved to Chicago and started a church. In June 1871, he teamed up with Ira Sankey, a gospel singer, and began a pattern of ministry that would later be copied by Billy Graham. The gospel preaching and singing conducted by Moody and Sankey would become a familiar format that Graham would copy for his crusades. Now, I doubt anyone here in the room except my husband has been actually attended a Billy Graham crusade. There may be others. Okay, Byron Burks, very good. Oh, John Gray. Praise the Lord. So you know what... (laughs) 2009, 2002? Oh, 1999. Okay. Well, anyway, so, um, and of course... Graham's crusades were televised widely. Um, I I used to watch them on TV with my dad. He liked them. Um, And you know that the format of a a Billy Graham crusade would start with music and singing and very good singers. And then Graham would begin to preach. And then he would invite everyone to come up uh, to receive Christ and receive prayer. Moody was doing this 
same format before Graham. And now we come, unfortunately, to the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And this is important because this affected Moody and his ministry. So he had landed, after the Civil War, he had landed in Chicago, and he was, you know, starting Sunday schools, started a church in Chicago. And so along comes the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. It burned from October 8th to October 10th of 1871, and the fire destroyed an area about four miles long by three-quarter mile wide and uh, roughly affecting an area of more than 2,000 acres. Moody lost his church and his home. Most of his congregation was left homeless. Buildings just burned to the ground. Uh, certainly this fire, you know, spreading through densely packed city blocks, um, it destroyed everything, and the fire brigades simply had, did not have enough resources to combat this. Like the panic that befell Charles Spurgeon and his congregation at Surrey Gardens Music Hall in 1856, Moody and his ministry were deeply impacted by the Chicago fire. Afterwards, Moody began traveling to raise funds to help the Chicago church rebuild. In New York, while walking down Wall Street, the young preacher finally received the spiritual blessing he and his ministry team had prayed for. So Moody had also been impacted by the holiness movement. He wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'd been praying for that. Um, and he finally received it. Moody felt such a sense of the Holy Spirit's filling that he cried, Hold, Lord! It is enough. From that time on, he experienced a new power in preaching with new opportunities for international ministry. Then Moody decided to move back to Northfield, Massachusetts, his birthplace, where he purchased a farm that would serve as a base from which to launch an international ministry. Moody had also traveled to England and had heard Spurgeon preach at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Spurgeon encouraged Moody and promoted him. So, you know, Moody preached throughout England. Um, now, Moody and Spurgeon differed somewhat um, theologically, but that did not stop them from essentially being friends. Now, much of Moody's work in the U.S. involved the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, uh, originally founded in England by George Williams, with 11 of his friends. Williams was a London businessman who was typical of the young men drawn to the cities by the Industrial Revolution. They were concerned about the lack of healthy activities for young men in major cities. The options available were usually taverns and brothels. Okay, again, today we take the YMCA for granted. There was a time when this institution did not exist and, you know, certainly at, at when we were talking about earlier, when we were talking about rakes, trying to start, start Sunday schools because he was concerned about vice. In other words, sinning. He was concerned about alcohol. He was concerned about prostitution. You know, what are these young men going to be drawn to? They need a healthy alternative. 
So Williams's ideas grew out of meetings that he held for prayer and Bible reading among his fellow workers in a business in the city of London. On June 6, 1844, Williams held the first meeting that led to the founding of the YMCA with the purpose of improving the spiritual condition of young men engaged in the English textile industries. In 1845, the YMCA started a popular series of lectures that from 1848 were held at Exeter Hall in London and started being published the following year with the series running until 1865. Just as the Sunday School movement aimed at helping impoverished children gain an education, the YMCA sought to bring a Christian influence into the lives of young men. The YMCA was associated with industrialization and the movement of young people to cities to work. The Y combined preaching in the streets and the distribution of religious tracts with the social ministry. Today, we know the YMCA mainly as recreational facilities and not really a lot of Christian emphasis. But at this time, there was a lot more Christian emphasis. And the philanthropists, in other words, wealthy, especially wealthy industrialists, um, they saw the Y as a place for wholesome recreation that would preserve youth from the temptations of alcohol, gambling, and prostitution and would promote good citizenship. Programs at the Y offered evangelical Protestant Christian weekday and Sunday services and athletic programs with gymnasiums and team sports, such as swimming, basketball, and volleyball. So there you can see the sports emphasis and where that comes from. The YMCA concept, of course, proved to be a popular idea and spread from the UK to the US and then worldwide. In, by 1851, there were YMCAs in Australia, Belgium, Canada, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Hong Kong, and the US. As the organization grew, it became more ecumenical in its religious aspects and reached out to many groups that were not evangelical English-speaking Christians. During World War I, the YMCA raised and sent uh, spent over $155 million on welfare efforts for American soldiers. It deployed over 25,000 staff in military units and bases from Siberia to Egypt to France. So this is, this is a, a, now a worldwide parachurch organization that is reaching out to so many different segments of society. The YMCA took over the military's morale and comfort operations worldwide. Francis Gullick, a YMCA worker stationed in France during World War I, received a U.S. Army citation for valor and courage on the field. So some of these workers were in battle, essentially side by side with troops. During World War II, the YMCA was involved in supporting millions of POWs and in supporting incarcerated Japanese Americans on the west coast of the US. This included helping young men leave the camps to attend Springfield College and providing youth activities in the camps. D.L. Moody actively worked with the YMCA throughout his ministry. Like the Sunday school, he saw the Y as a perfect opportunity 
to make connections with young people and further the work of evangelism. In a sense, you could say that the YMCA was functioning somewhat like uh, Rock Campus Fellowship functions at Wright State. Wright State is a way for uh, our church to reach young people who may not have heard the gospel or uh, maybe they've heard the gospel, maybe they're Christians, maybe they're looking for a church. So the Y in this respect um, was essentially a parachurch organization, but for Moody, this parachurch organization worked alongside the church, not against the church, as some, uh, some parachurch organizations tend to do. And the goal was to use the Y to reach the unchurched and when converted, get them to go to a local church. Moody's work with YMCA in Chicago grew the organization to the point that Y members didn't want to attend another local church on Sundays. Moody then turned the Y in the North Market section of Chicago into an actual church, the Illinois Street Church. Almost every communicant or member had been rescued from degradation by the work of the Y. Each member was given tasks to do to serve the church. Meetings were held every night, and to many it seemed it was a continuous revival. Moody at times would find himself completely exhausted and almost ready to give up. But a few hours of rest or a slight change in occupation generally su sufficed to put him very quickly on his feet again. Moody, like Spurgeon, basically worked himself to death for the Lord. Um, it, it's amazing how many parallels there are if you read biographies of both men. Many parallels between, um, you know, their lives. And they worked unceasingly. They just never stopped. Later in life, Moody would continue to raise funds in support of the Y. He would go on after the Great Chicago Fire to help the homeless in the city, rebuild the church, and continue ministering to all he could. After the fire, he preached a stirring sermon in which he proclaimed he had also preached the night of the fire right before they fled the church to get away from the fire. But uh, after the fire, he said, after the meeting, we went home, referring to the previous day. I remember going down LaSalle Street with a young man who was probably in the hall tonight and saw the glare of flames. I said to the young man, this means ruin to Chicago. He continued, about one o'clock, Farwell Hall went, soon the church in which I had preached went down and everything was scattered. I never saw that audience again. My friends, we don't know what may happen tomorrow, but there is one thing I do know, and that is, if you take the gift, you are saved. If you have eternal life, you need not fear fire, death, or sickness. Let disease or death come. You can shout triumphantly over the grave if you have Christ. My friends, what are you going to do with him tonight? Will you decide now? So this fire didn't shut him down. He continued his preaching, and he went on to have uh, just an incredible ministry. Another interesting thing about Moody, uh, I didn't include it in, in the presentation, but um, interestingly, 
although he went to many different countries and preached, he never made it to any of the Scandinavian nations, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland. He never made it to those countries, but his printed materials did. And those countries were swept with an evangelical awakening simply because of Moody's literature. And many Scandinavians, uh, you know, just basically used all of his materials to uh, support their ministries and what they were doing to evangelize in their countries. So I think his work is a testament. You know, one man can only do so much. Certainly, this was a great man who achieved great things. He preached to millions of people. Many people were saved under his ministry, but many more were impacted uh, through the organizations that he left and his writings. I would really encourage you, if you've never done so, to read some things that he wrote. Um, there's a lot of free stuff on the internet, and um, here's just a few. Um, there's uh, just a lot of free stuff on the internet about Moody, um, biography, uh, biographies of him, his family members, his wife. I didn't even get a chance to mention his wife, Emma. Um, she worked along, just like uh, Charles Spurgeon's wife, uh, she worked alongside her husband, assisted the ministry in many, many ways, and she was one of the ones, just like Charles Spurgeon's wife, Susanna, making sure that literature was being disseminated widely, that people were getting pamphlets, books, and tracts, um, and extending the ministry in that way. So this concludes what I have for the, the Sunday School Movement, the YMCA, and Dwight L. Moody. Any questions or comments?